Welcome to Dark History Time with Brian. A few things before we get started. need to let you know that you might find some of this material disturbing. We do use adult language on the show. Listener to discretion is advised. Welcome back to another episode of Dark History Time with Brian. I did a little soul-searching for a, a topic, and then I've decided that I kind of want these things to just pop in my head and come organically. I haven't planned them out like I had thought that I would. And once I started doing the research, I realized that maybe I'm falling into a little bit of a rut here with shooters, because that's what we're going to address again this week. They're also so common, though. They are. And, yeah, some of the stuff you're going to hear they in this episode. They do a lot episode, of damage. They're common. <clears throat> they're common. There's most of the reasoning behind it tends to be the same. I mean, these are people that are, it's, it's the same with stalkers that kill. They're people that are nothing. So the only way they can make a name is by doing things like this. And, and you're going to hear that on a couple of occasions here. This one's going to be a little bit different. It's not, uh, it's not like Huberty that went to one location with the idea of, of doing as much damage as he could, Whitman going up in the tower and doing what he did. We are going to hit on what are called school shootings a little bit this go-around. This might end up being a two-parter. I don't know when the second part will drop, but I did go back. I would like to think that a lot of you guys aren't going to know most of what I'm going to bring up because I stopped in 93. So I went back prior to that and I gave myself a break in 1993 because I'd written and read a lot by that point. So one point I want to get out there before we get too far into this. This is from Wikipedia, which I know is not a great source. However, this is the best wording that I have found to illustrate the point that I want to illustrate. It defines a school shooting as an attack at an educational institution, such as a primary school, secondary school, or university, involving the use of firearms. Many school shootings are also categorized as mass shootings due to multiple casualties. What you will notice is missing from that definition. It says perpetrated by a student or a juvenile or something like that. It does not have to be. The thing that makes it a school shooting is the environment, not necessarily the perpetrator. I say that because you will see in some of these that I bring up, it was not a student. Um, I did not write down a bunch of them that had only a victim or two. I know that's I know that's kind of shitty, but as far as single victims or zero casualty shootings, they just don't get as much attention. And because of that, there's not as much for me to tell you. So, I mean, I could give you a school name, date, and time and say that one occurred there, but you're ju there's just not that much there for it. Thankfully, Correct. there was no damage done. Correct. Well, I, I, there's no, no casualties, I should say that. There's right. obviously damage done, but there's no casualties. Exactly. I mean, there's going to be one that I, I probably will bring up at some point. It was called the Success Tech. 
it was in Cleveland, Ohio. I ran across it when I did my, one of my little Cleveland road trips. The only fatality was the shooter himself. I don't know if that's why it didn't make news, but it was it was haunting. I mean, uh, it was. I don't know the proper terminology that I'm trying to think of for what kind of an alternate school. It was an alternate school where you know they they had problems in regular public schooling, so this was like a last chance type of school. So that's what it was. And this kid, uh, they had him on the closed circuit television. You can find a still photo of him walking down the hallways with a gun in each hand. And then ultimately a uh, police officer was fired because when the kid took his life, he took a cell phone picture and shared it amongst mm -hmm. everybody, which, of course, you can find on the Internet as well, a picture of this kid laying there in his own blood. So anyway, that's I wanted to get that out of the way as far as the definition. So when you hear me maybe talk about some of these guys that are not of school age, You'll know that doesn't that doesn't necessarily matter here. All right, and hopefully I don't give Austin too many cuts to make because I did just make my rough notes, not my final draft. So we will see what happens here. I did find school shootings going back to the 1800s in schoolhouses back then, but the first one I chose to start with occurred November 12, 1966. The perpetrator was Robert Smith, who was 18 years old. In his earlier life, he had idolized Julius Caesar, Napoleon, JFK. After JFK was assassinated, it, it really struck Robert for some reason, and he, uh, he kind of flipped a little bit and started idolizing Oswald, John Wilkes Booth, Jesse James, and Hitler. And then... In July of 1966, all over the news is Richard Speck, his rampage killing the nurses in Chicago, followed directly by August 66, Charles Whitman going up into the tower and shooting everybody at the University of Texas in Austin. So those two events occurred July and August 66, November 12, 66. Robert Smith decides he's going to uh, he's going to add his name to the list. He considers committing a shooting at his high school. But he instead chose a local beauty salon that was also a cosmetology school known as the Rosemar College of Beauty in Mesa, Arizona. He calmly walked in, rounded up a group of women and children, made them all lie down. This became known in the media when, it, when this took place. They called it the Wheel of Death because he laid them down in a circle, basically all their heads in towards him. And uh, he began shooting the, the people that he had laying on the ground. When one of the wounded women started to move, he stabbed her, and it was reported that he was laughing throughout the entire thing. He reported that he felt exhilarated while killing, and he was asked about it, killing a baby, to which he replied, well, it was going to grow up and become an adult anyway. When the police arrived, he announced, I shot some people, they're back in there. And he stated that he was disappointed that there weren't more people to kill. Regarding the motivation, Smith stated, I wanted to kill about 40 people so I could make a name for myself. I wanted people to know who I was. Ultimately, he took the lives of four women and a toddler. He was sentenced to death, which was later commuted to life sentence in 1972 when the Supreme Court ruled the death penalty uh, unconstitutional. There was a lot of people that were part of what they called it the class of 72, most notably Charles Manson. His, his sentence was commuted to life sentence in, in 1972 when the Supreme Court ruled death penalty unconstitutional. Uh, 
Moving on to December 30th of 1974. This one took place in New York, the Olean High School in Olean, New York. 17-year-old Anthony Barbero was an honor student and member of the school's rifle team. It's a little different than what we're used to hearing from school shootings. He went up to the third floor, set off a smoke bomb, which got a custodian to respond, who he promptly shot and killed. Then he positioned himself in the student council room and began shooting out of a window. So he was actually targeting people outside, a little bit Whitman-esque. He fired 31 shots, killed three people and wounded 11. Police lobbed some tear gas into the room. They found him unconscious. He was wearing a faulty gas mask, so he had clearly thought this out for a little bit. Let's see. In a note that Barbaro wrote, he wrote, I guess I just wanted to kill the person I hate most, myself. I just didn't have the courage to do so. I wanted to die, but I couldn't do it. So I had to get someone to do it for me. It didn't work out. He was sentenced, actually while he was awaiting trial, my fault, while he was awaiting trial, November 1, 1975, he did ultimately take his own life by hanging himself with a bread sheet in the county jail. Moving on again, we go to February 19, 1976, the Computer Learning School in Los Angeles. I hope I say this person's name right, although he is clearly a, a turd, so I guess it's not too big a deal if I get it wrong. 18-year-old Neil Liebeskind took a 12-gauge shotgun into class. He wanted to kill a particular student that he had an issue with. He ended up killing a different student when he fired off around and wounded six others. He's confronted by a security officer, and he shot him. The officer and a secondary security officer returned fire, and that they, they struck Liebeskind. He was not killed. I mean, they, they hit him somewhere in the torso it it stopped the shootings of note four years earlier Liebeskind had been shot by a homeowner while burglarizing that guy's house so we see it's a little bit different he, I mean he had one particular target in mind but then once he started shooting it didn't matter he'd been shot before by for criminal behavior and he was actually ultimately found not guilty by reason of insanity and had to be uh, put in a psych hospital. You may or may not know of this one, Austin. This one, uh, something that she said became a pop culture thing. It was actually turned into a song by the Boomtown Rats. Uh, they, They wrote a song around a statement that she made. We are talking about the January 29th, 1979 incident involving 16-year-old Brenda Spencer at the Grover Cleveland Elementary School in San Diego. From all accounts, Brenda did not have a good upbringing. Her dad was abusive. Um, She admitted to drug use and other things at at just 16 years old. Uh, Anger issues. She had shot out the windows at her school numerous times with a BB gun. And for some reason, her dad decided to buy her a 22 rifle with a scope for Christmas. That was a Christmas gift. Great idea. Great idea for a child with anger issues who's already shot out windows at the at the school. So she gets this 22 rifle, and on January 29th, which happens to be a Monday, from her home, which was right across the street from the school, she shoots the principal and the head custodian as they are opening the school for the for the day. Uh, Then she starts shooting at students who are headed to the school. 
She fired 36 rounds. She hit eight children and three adults. She fired for about 20 minutes and then was involved in a six-hour standoff with SWAT team members. She turned herself over. Police found more than 200 rounds still left in the house. A reporter during, this is the crazy part, a reporter during the shootings was calling around to the houses. He was finding phone numbers for the low, for the addresses. He's calling around, just seeing if he can find out where it's coming from. He actually calls her. She answers the phone during the middle of the shooting and it freely admitted that, yeah, I'm the one doing the shooting. When he asked her why, here is the most famous quote that I've, that you guys may or may not know. When asked why, she stated, I just don't like Mondays. I did this because it's a way to cheer up the day. She also told negotiators it was a lot of fun seeing children shot. She got sentenced to 25 years to life. She is still in prison. But yes, there's a song by the Boomtown Rats called I Don't Like Mondays. And that was based on Brenda Spencer. A lot of people know that story of a girl that said, I don't like Mondays. There's where it came from. That's appalling. She had very deep issues. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even for her to have a perspective like that, to boil it down into, you know, a quote that yeah. I'm sure a lot, like I've heard that, I'm sure a lot of people have heard yeah. that, oh, I just don't like Mondays. Just want yep. to cheer it up. Yep. And that it was fun seeing the children being shot. Yeah. That, that's an issue. That's an issue. Uh, this one I found a little interesting because it's, uh, it, it's pretty short and sweet. If you can call it that, I guess that's 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 a terrible analogy to use. My fault. I apologize. Please don't hate me for it. Don't cancel me. Um, this one took place April seventeenth, nineteen eighty one, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in a dorm a dorm called Bursley Hall. Twenty two year old Leo Kelly Jr. threw a Molotov cocktail down the sixth floor hallway at the dorm. Two students who were fleeing from that were shot by him with a sawed off shotgun. He killed them both. He had been dismissed from the University of Michigan once before and was about to be dismissed again for poor grades. He was sentenced to life in prison. This one, uh, I think, probably requires further reading on my part. I, I got the nuts and bolts here. But the whole thing is is more than a little bit intriguing. I think you'll see what I mean. Um, this one took place March 19, 1982 at Valley High School in Las Vegas. It's perpetrated by a 17-year-old named Patrick Lazzati. I hope I'm saying that correct. Um, he was a loner. He was recognized as such. Um, a psychology teacher, Clarence Piggott, kind of recognized that. And, and from what people said, Clarence thought that he had a student there that he could help. He thought he could maybe help figure out what was making Patrick this way and, and maybe help him along, pull him out of his shell, give him some coping mechanisms and things like that. However, on March 19th in 1982, Patrick went to school with a 22 revolver, a knife, and 100 rounds. He entered the classroom of that psychology teacher, Clarence Piggott. He set a book calmly on Piggott's desk, took out his gun, and aimed at Piggott's chest. Piggott asked, or said, come on, Pat, don't do it. Lazzotti fired a shot right into his chest, killing him instantly. He calmly exited the class and commented to students in the hallway, well, that takes care of that. He continued down the hall and exited the school. Three students who were entering the school at the time, he, he shot at them. He hit two of them. Luckily, neither one of them fatally. He walked into a nearby neighborhood and made numerous threats to people, 
but he did not end up shooting anybody else. About five blocks away from the school, he was confronted by a police officer who was standing behind his car door once he, once he saw him walking down there and tells him to drop his weapon. Lazzotti raised his gun towards the officer who shot him. Lazzotti believed that Piggott, fortunately for him, I suppose, he, he was not fatally injured in this uh, shooting. Lazzotti believed that Piggott knew that he was mentally ill and was going to have him institutionalized, and the only way to prevent that was to kill him. The three students that he shot at, when he was asked about those, he said, well, they just look like three cans, so I took aim at the middle can and fired. He was sentenced to life with no parole, plus 60 years, but I found there's a, there's a Nevada law talking about sentencing and, and what your age is that apparently gave this guy an out, and he was actually granted parole in 2017. Wow. So that's what, 25 years? So he served 25 years. So let's do the math here. 12, so he's 45 years old when he gets out. Still got a poly of life in front of him. Some of the people that uh, were there at the school, I did find some things where they talked to them and they said, well, if if he's true, truly rehabilitated, I suppose I don't have an issue with it, but that one just, that struck me as real weird. Yeah, no, I, I think agree. I would. I think I would That's need tough. to know more about what his mental illness was and what the treatments are that he got. Clearly, he must have proven to somebody that he was capable. no longer a danger. But that leads me directly to a serial killer that I am. I have always been fascinated by Edmund Kemper. Kemper killed his grandparents when he was fifteen years old, and he convinced everybody in the psychological field that he was remorseful and that he was better and he was no longer danger and then he went out and became a serial killer so i believe in mental health professionals but i also like any field i feel like there's definitely some that are easily fooled for some reason or another Kemper stated that he thought it was easy enough for him to do that at 15 years old because they knew he was a different case. So they wanted to be the ones that saved him. That's that's his rationale, and he could be right. I no, mean, I think that's valid. I mean, if you ever see anything with Kemper, and I highly encourage anybody to, to find some things on Kemper, he is a very uh, introspective guy. And it's it, that's why it's extremely fascinating for me to watch things on him and to learn about him because he he has the vocabulary and the ability to say I know in my mind I was going nuts but I also couldn't stop myself from going nuts it, it just very introspective guy and that makes him more interesting it's the same way with Jeffrey Dahmer I mean Jeffrey Dahmer after he's in prison they prison interviews he's very introspective he's like I know what I did I could not help myself from doing it though so those two make for fascinating listening for me just just to see their mind work yeah, and the self-awareness that they exactly have. yeah exactly absolutely because most of these guys aren't you know no, they're, they're they just do what they do because they know they're yeah yeah and they know that's their get off i mean especially serial killers that's their get off so for these guys to 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 have the the ability to look at themselves and know that that's a little bit different January 20th, 1983, 
Parkway South Junior High School in Manchester, Missouri. This one is perpetrated by 14-year-old David Lawler. After an argument that he had the previous day with his eventual victim, he takes a 22 automatic pistol, a 22 revolver, 100 rounds, and a large knife to school. In a study hall, he jumps up and shoots his intended victim in the chest and another student in the side. After firing more rounds without striking anyone, he walked to the door of the classroom and shot himself in the head in front of 25 students and a teacher. A note was found in his backpack indicating that it was all planned out. I found the original article <clears throat> about this, and they, the original uh, thought by law enforcement was that he, they didn't really know. They thought it was just a heat of passion type of thing. Pissed off at a kid, but then they never, and to my knowledge and through my research, you could never find it. There was a few notes that they had found. They never said what all the contents were, except to say that we have come to these conclusions based on what was written in the notes. That he planned, he planned on going it there. For some time. He he left a suicide note or two behind. So he he knew he was going to take his life, but he had to take a couple other ones first, apparently. Mm. Um, I will get into one later on um, in West Jonesboro, Arkansas. There was a school shooting that involved two shooters of a very young age. I need to get my ages correct before I go into this one. And I'll, like I said, I'll hit that at a different time. I did not work up to that one. But here is uh, one of our first accounts of two shooters. And this one's... It's more than a little bit fucked up. It wasn't... It does not seem like a school shooting was their intent. It seems like they were just... Uh, budding juvenile delinquents and consequences, or I mean not consequences, but uh, things led to it ending up being a school shooting. February 11th, 1988, Pinellas Park High School in Largo, Florida. 15-year-old Jason Harless and 15-year-old Jason McCoy. They actually went into a neighbor's house and stole some guns while he was on vacation. That neighbor happened to be a police officer who did not properly secure his weapons, so they got two 38 caliber pistols from him. Oh, no. They took them to school, and in the cafeteria during lunch hour, they were bragging about having these guns. Obviously, this causes some alarm. An assistant principal and another administrator approached McCoy first and asked him to go to the office with him to talk about it. Instead, he decides to draw his gun. They were able to wrestle him down, unaware that his buddy Harless also had a gun. So Harless starts shooting to try to help McCoy get away from them. They both fled the school. Harless even decided to fire at a couple cops who ultimately shot him. And they found McCoy hiding in a friend's house. Harless was uh, found guilty of second-degree murder. He spent eight years in prison. McCoy... She was found guilty of third degree. He was sentenced to six years, and he ended up serving less than two. On good behavior? <laughs> it did, did not he... go into it. It did not go into it. But he was supposed to serve until he was 21 and ended up serving until he was about 17. So you don't know if he appealed or... I do any not know. like that? No, I did not look far enough into it. I probably should have, but I did not. I mean, that's and... a pretty... 
drastic jump. Your sentence to six. I know you're right. really not going to serve six. If no, it's most likely defense, you're not. But yeah, two, two, <laughs> two for shooting a, a, a couple of adults sentence. in a school. Yeah, gonna get into a couple that were uh, diabolical to say the least. I mean these. The ones that everybody knows, Columbine and how mm-hmm. cold and calculated that Eric and Dylan seem to be, these guys predate that, and you, and you kind of see the same behavior. September 26, 1988, Oakland Elementary School in Greenwood, South Carolina. 19-year-old James William Wilson. He entered the school and went to the cafeteria and started firing at students and teachers with a 22 revolver. Since it is a revolver, obviously limited rounds. After he empties the, the pistol, he goes to a restroom to reload it. There he was confronted by a teacher who he shot in the mouth, and I believe they said hand. Fortunately, that teacher didn't die, but obviously he moves past. Then he goes into a classroom and starts shooting again. He ran out of ammo and fled through a window. Here's where it gets a little weird, and there'll be another one that I talk about if we do this in a two-parter. I believe it was the one in Paducah, Kentucky, where as soon as the shooter was confronted by an authority figure, he stopped. Here again, as he's leaving and going out through a window, a teacher yelled at him to stop and put his hands up, which he did, and waited for the cops to get there. He ended up killing two people and wounding nine. He was sentenced to death, where he still sits on death row in South Carolina. This one could probably almost be a standalone episode if I went way into it, which I'm going to go a little bit, but not extremely far. Because I was able to find, um, they call it the psychological autopsy of this perpetrator. It was 99 pages. Very thorough, very detailed. I could have pulled a whole lot from that. Um, it's a name that some people will know, even though it predates most of the school shootings we know. This one took place at Cleveland Elementary School in Stockton, California. It was perpetrated by 24-year-old Patrick Purdy. Patrick was a drug and alcohol abuser. He had, he had been to numerous mental health uh, facilities. He would go because he knew he was having issues, but he would never follow up with any treatment. He would never take it, and he would never do a follow-up appointment. He would never... He'd never come back. He would just... He'd show up at his lows. Show up at his lows, get out. You wouldn't see him until rinse and repeat. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Those visits were always for suicidal and homicidal thoughts. I know it's tough to say that maybe if people had talked... Plus, I mean, Stockton, California, I don't know how big it is. I I have a feeling it's a pretty big city. so, So you wouldn't have that network, but... It'd be nice if there was a mental health network, even if you didn't name the person, just saying, I saw a 24-year-old white male with these thoughts and, and maybe have some kind of some kind of database or something to cross-reference things just so you could see the, the trail that this person's on and, and realize that it might be a potential issue. I'd, especially a pattern like that. Exactly. Be very obvious. Right, especially if every single time he says, I'm thinking of killing myself and others. At... I don't know. That's that's something to. I'm sure there's HIPAA laws and and patients' rights, and I know pa- that's patient confidentiality and things like that. But when it comes to danger that could possibly be averted, I 
I, I'd like to think we could figure out a way to do that. He eventually formulated the idea that suicide was going to be his way out, but he decided he also wanted to kill others to make a name for himself. He had taken to a habit of blaming all minorities for his failings. He happened to focus mostly on Southeast Asians, since that was the, the population that was in the area at the time, and that's who he had the most encounters with. You have to remember, at this time, Southeast Asians, 1989, Vietnam ended in 75. We have a lot of refugees coming over. You also have uh, the Khmer Rouge doing their thing in Cambodia, a lot of people fleeing from that. So this is only a 14 years removed from, from Vietnam, but nonetheless close enough that you're, you're starting to see those refugees' children in elementary school. He had attended Cleveland Elementary himself, and he knew it to be highly populated by Southeast Asian folks. On January 17th, 1989, he dressed himself in a long-sleeve camo shirt. He had a flak jacket, jeans and boots, a black ammo pouch around his waist, which held three fully loaded 30-round magazines of 7.62 rifle ammo, 50 rounds of 9mm, and 20 loose 7.62 rounds. He inserts earplugs into his ear. He carries an AK-47 style rifle to the side of the school and at about 11.40 a.m. he walks towards the playground where there are at least 300 students at recess. And unlike Hubert Ian Whitman, who targeted people, actually shouldered the rifle, take aim, Purdy's going for mass casualties. So... He holds the rifle at waist level and begins firing using his side-to-side -side sweeping motion. He fires 66 rounds into the crowd, then runs around to another side of the playground, fired nine more rounds, reloaded, and fired 30 more. When he hears the police sirens heading to the school, he drops the rifle, pulls out his 9mm, and fires one shot into his right temple, taking his own life. He fired a total of 105 rounds into the students and teachers. He left five dead and 31, including a teacher, wounded. All of the deceased were ages six to nine. Mm. So when you hear <laughs> about what he had and how he did it, it is amazing that he did not kill more people. Simply amazing. You got to figure, a grown man, I think I saw on the autopsy report that he was five, I feel like 5'11". 5'11", like 170 pounds. 5'11", waist height, 6 through 9-year-olds. You're talking chest and head. Yeah. So it, it it's amazing to me. I, I would like to think that he was piss poor with his weapon, and he let it ride up, which pr might have led to, to the fewer fatalities. It did say a number of people were um, struck by ricochets or or concrete and asphalt being kicked up. That's a saving grace, I suppose. So maybe he did let it ride up and then overcorrected and got it down. Either way, it could have been a whole lot worse. It's it's not like it wasn't bad to begin with. I mean, that's it's fucking god awful. That's a piece of shit. I mean, you're yeah, you're small yeah, kids. You're nothing. So you go back to your old school to take out who you think is your problem and yeah and. From what I was reading, apparently he was living in Connecticut at one point, decided he was going to kill himself, but then decided, hey, I want to have a huge last hurrah before I kill myself, and decided to do that. It, 
just just pitiful this one I'm surprised I didn't know more about because this would have been about a year after I got out of high school and and it's kind of crazy for me to, to really have no knowledge of it May 1 1992 Lindhurst High School in Olivehurst California this one is perpetrated by a 20-year-old named Eric Houston. He was a former student at Lynnhurst High School. He had dropped out after failing some classes. He went to the school wearing camouflage and ammo belt, carrying a shotgun and a 22 rifle. He fired the shotgun into three different classrooms, and one of the first people killed was a teacher who had given him an F, the reason that he felt like he failed out. He then went upstairs and had it and was able to herd together about 80 students. He engaged in an eight and a half hour standoff during which he said, the reason I am doing all of this is because I didn't graduate from high school. Mr. Brins flunked me and I just want revenge. He also repeatedly said, according to numerous students, this school failed me. He eventually did release all the hostages and surrendered to police. He killed four people, wounded 11, and there was the 80 that were no doubt scarred by being held hostage for eight and a half hours by this nut. I read that he he released 10 pretty quickly, um, started giving his demands. He wanted to be heard. He wanted to air his grievances about the school. Then he requested drinks and pizza for all of them. And when he got that, he released like 20 more and ultimately just released everybody. He was sentenced to death where he still sits on death row in San Quentin. And that is my list. I will pick back up at some point with the December 14th, 1992 shooting perpetrated by Wayne Lowe, who was another interesting one that you will learn more about at a later date. So, as you can see, Columbine wasn't the first. Um, fortunately, a lot of these had fewer fatalities. I mean, when Columbine did occur, it, it was the, the most casualties in a school environment. Um, unfortunately, quickly surpassed by Virginia Tech only a few years later. Um, they've, it's, it's been around for a long time. A number of these that I found that were lower victim counts that I did not put in here were perpetrated by faculty members against fellow faculty members. So, I mean, that, like I said, Still the counts. environment it counts. Yeah. It's the, it's the, where the event took place is what makes it a school shooting. Um, lots of instances that I found in the 60s in particular, even in the late 50s, I believe, I found a number of instances where there was racially motivated shootings, pot shots taken at students, um, some school buses on school grounds shot at after football games. It truly is nothing new as far as basically children targeting other children or in some cases piece of shit adults targeting children. Uh, Patrick Purdy, I, I saw nothing in, I did not read all 99 pages, but I, I did read quite a bit of it. No redeeming qualities to that dude, none whatsoever. Um, he, he had a, a somewhat unloving, tough childhood, which we know is not great, and we know it does lead to some things, but leading you to think that you're the enemies and the reason for your failed existence is 
six, seven, eight year old kids, I got nothing for you. I, I, I can, you have to take accountability at some point right. on your own and your own actions. And I mean, the guy's rap sheet, that's, that's part of it. That's a number of pages. He was in trouble from, I think the age of 14 on, he prostituted himself to get more drugs, to get more alcohol, uh, petty crimes, burglarized, uh, rolled people, did, did a bunch of stuff. I guess maybe not on the radar because none of it was violent crime up until that point. But nonetheless, just a giant piece of shit. And I mean, the same thing, I still have not heavily researched uh, the Newtown shootings, but Adam Lanza was 20 years old when he perpetrated that. It's his former school. He goes after, after, uh, what was that? kindergarten or first graders i think kindergarten through k through two i think maybe second grade either way very little kids the excuses of well they first they threw out autistic which rightfully upset and angered a bunch of uh, autistic advocates because autism is typically there's not that kind of violence involved i mean um you and I know somebody that's been a few people probably that have been mm-hmm. on the spectrum. If there's any, the, the violence that I remember with the one that I was intimately involved with was towards himself. Yeah. More it's usually not else. a malicious intent. No. It's usually more of a, a self-destructive no. response. Yep. But maybe during an episode or throwing things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Things like that. But that, like I said, rightfully so got shot down in a hurry and and people got educated in a hurry that no that's that is not an excuse for for Lanza's uh behavior then they you know they quickly flipped that well no we didn't mean uh, autism we meant Asperger's which is on the spectrum autism still autism so the narrative started towards blaming that instead of trying to find or instead of finding blame with the person himself and apparently even his i mean his mom said she didn't know how to deal with it and couldn't control it so she let him get firearms she would take him shooting they would shoot together she let him live in a whole separate part of the house by himself the way he wanted to do it if you are afraid of your child that's an issue that needs to be addressed and you need to be the adult and the parent and get it addressed. Um, not going to say it would have turned out any better. I mean, it could have turned out a murder-suicide, his mom and himself. But it would have been a whole lot of innocent kids that were spared that. So most of the excuses that you see are just that, in my opinion, excuses. There's very few that I think you can look into their mental makeup something that was wrong i mean what did i what did i have two of them i believe let me look here yeah that neil Liebeskind who was found not guilty by reason of insanity ended up in a psych hospital i think he might be the only one wasn't he did i think said what to us to a psychiatric i believe so hospital yeah yeah you the, at least the only one that oh noted. well yeah and that uh Patrick Lazzotti that I mentioned, the one that got out on parole in 2017 uh, after shooting the teacher. Clearly, there was mental health issues there. Clearly. It does not excuse his actions. But 
you've almost got to wonder. 17 is pretty early for schizophrenia. Um, I don't know if they've changed that definition or if that's changed in the DSM manual, but it used to be that they wouldn't diagnose schizophrenia under the age of 18, and it usually starts onset very late teens, early 20s. So that'd be a pretty early case, but uh, persecution complex, uh, some other kind of disorder where you feel like people can read your mind. Clearly he felt that that psycho psychology teacher knew that he had something wrong or was going to institutionalize him. He, I don't think he just, I don't think those thoughts just naturally occur. I don't think. I don't think so either. I mean, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that something has to be going on for you to to first have those thoughts and then to let them just... And to feel threatened by those Feel threatened enough that you feel you like you have act. to, yeah, where yeah. you have to eliminate the threat to your freedom. I think there's more going on there. And like I said, that that's one that I think, if I could find anything, because most of what I find is, is just talking about that Nevada law that let him get out at the time he got out. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to see if I could find more and dig up more on him and his mental makeup. But outside of those guys, most of these people are just, like I said, just like a stalker. I, I need to get my book right so I can quote you guys right. It was by one of the original behavioral sciences guys that talks about the mental breakdown of that type of offender who in their mind finally gets it to the point of all right i know i'm never going to be anything unless i do something to make myself something and it's never anything good to make themselves anything no it's always an act of violence it's always something big and grandiose that gets them the attention because they've gotten to the point that it doesn't matter that it's negative attention it's attention they've never had it They've always wanted it. It doesn't matter what kind it is, as long as their name is out there and known. It does, they don't matter what the attachment to their name is, but they are in the papers and on the they news. They want the headlines. Yep. Yep. So there's that. Um, hopefully you guys didn't hear that stomach rumble, <laughs> but maybe you did. Austin's got these mics pretty good, so you might have picked it up. But nonetheless, uh, thank you very much for listening. I've gotten a little more feedback here and there. Some of uh Especially on the Huberty one, apparently I had an issue with my uh, clearing my throat a lot in that episode. <laughs> apparently it was one of those aller or allergy nights. There you had a dry throat. I yeah. tried to mitigate some of it out, but yeah, yeah some of it just kind of came. I mean, we're people, guys. I mean, it's not a robot. Yeah, we're humans. I, I'd like to think that you enjoy the idea that we're, we're people, not uh, just reading in a monotone. And I don't think I'm reading in a monotone. I, I think I give a little inflection here and there. If I'm too monotone, tell me, and I'll pep it up a little bit for you. But uh, <laughs> otherwise, I I like to read and tell. They're not my stories. I like to tell you guys about these occurrences. And, uh, yeah, occasionally I won't be top health. Sometimes I'll have my little mental pauses where I'm trying to think of the right things to say. Uh, if that is something that throws you off a little bit, I, I apologize. But and I, and I take it to heart. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to be hard to listen to. <laughs> so so I try to take those things into account and let me know if there's anything uh, you think I could do better, think I could do different, uh, topics, 
again, I, I keep hitting on those topics. I think very soon I am going to throw you a serial killer too because that's what everybody knows me for is my interest in serial killers. But I have found as I've gotten a little older and gotten further into this genre that it's, it, it's history. It is dark history, but it is history that, uh, that I gravitate towards. So the serial killers will come up. Like I said, I've always been a little bit worried about doing some of the big names because they've been done ad nauseum and people... I, I can't bring anything new to most of those conversations other than if you hear me talking about them. Some people, some people like my voice. <laughs> some people like hearing it from me. So, I mean, that's... But you've got a, a fair collection of them that you can bring quite a bit to the table when it yeah. comes to what you've seen, like record-wise, that right. most people... Not that nobody wouldn't have access to them but you went out of your way to get access to them right yeah there is there's some that fit that bill there's some that i feel like me personally i feel like probably should have gotten more attention or should be more well known and aren't that i might i might start with those type of guys um one that has always fascinated me that you just don't hear in too many conversations. Gary Heidnick, I've been thinking Gary Heidnick might be my first one that I talk about. Um, one that our friend Mitchell brought up for possibly doing on Morbidly McCobbin, we might be doing that this week, is uh, Donald Wee Gaskins. A lot of people don't know his name. Uh, he's South Carolina's most prolific killer, but it's South Carolina. It's 30, 40 years ago. It's not a mass media market, so still pretty current though 30 40 years ago. yeah I, I i need to know better i think he i think he was operating in the 60s and 70s i i i have to revisit it i have his book it's one of the first books that i that i personally sought out and purchased it wasn't one that i just found readily available at a bookstore i i think i had to order it i actually uh Rented it from the Champaign Public Library back in 93, I think is when it came out. I'd rented it. It was on the new release thing. And it's called Final Truth by Donald Gaskins. And it's basically his autobiography. And I remember reading it to my girlfriend at the time. Didn't get it finished. So I found a way. This is, this might be pre-internet. I think I found a way. I don't remember how, but I found a place where I could order it. I think maybe I even had the library order me a copy because I have it in hardback. And I'm not usually... As much as I love books, I'm not a book snob that has to have first edition hardback stuff. It doesn't matter to me. If I could get, if I happen to stumble upon some, yeah, then cool. I get them. Get I mean, I've got a couple first edition books that just I just happen to stumble upon, and that's what they had at the used bookstore, and, and I lucked into it. Um, it's not something I seek out. I had a friend that in high school, when Stephen King released a new book, he had to have it. Day of release, hardback. I'd wait six, eight months and get it in the paperback and pay half as, you know, pay half the price. If you're not a collector, you don't right. really have to have, because the content's the same, exactly. more or less. Exactly. I know sometimes the first editions might have a different, like, epilogue or right. might have some kind of, like, author's notation in the in the front. But, yeah, I mean, more or less, if you're going into it for the story or really just the content within it. Exactly. I, I'm the same way. And, I mean... One that I can't, I can't remember what it was called. It's something Harvest. I found it at a used bookstore. It was written, I think, in '53, and it was about the the uh, Nazis exterminating the Jews. And I mean, it's like very yellowed. It's 
I, I am very cautious with it. And it was a, like a first edition, like directly after the war. That one stays in a special place. I don't break it out to, for too many people. Yeah, I, I wasn't seeking it out, but when I saw it and it was like eight bucks, I'm like, shit, oh, I gotta yeah. have that. I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's friggin' history in itself, right there. Yeah, how could? So there's been some of those. I I happened to. I didn't realize at the time. I'm finding out now that I have a book that's apparently pretty rare on Charles Manson, that came out early on, and then there was lawsuits that basically led to it being not able to be published anymore. I didn't realize that was the book I had, and it, and it is. I remember posting it when I bought it at the used bookstore, and somebody commented. They were like, oh, this is before, that was before this lawsuit and this censorship and and the federal government saying this about that book. And I was like, holy shit, okay. I didn't think much of it when that person commented, but then for shits and giggles, I think I looked on Amazon and some other places, and it's it's like three or $400 book because there's just yeah. not very many of them out there. Books get surprisingly yeah. very valuable, a lot yeah. more valuable than I've ever thought. I recently uh, came to attention with that. I don't remember where it was. I think Tiana was the one who brought it to my attention about a book that she was trying to replace mm-hmm. from her childhood. And yeah, same deal. Oh, yeah. A hardback of it. You're talking hundreds of dollars. Yep. Well, I remember when I first learned that uh, Ted Bundy's girlfriend, Liz Klopfer, wrote a book, uh, The Phantom Prince. It was a limited pressing I was always on the lookout for it, eBay and all that good stuff. The cheapest I ever saw it, I think, was 600 bucks. I was not upset like some people would be when they decided to reissue it here a few years ago, a couple years back, because the new some of the new Bundy stuff was based on her book. She was she got a new deal as far as, as republishing it. I, I didn't have a problem because I was like, now I can afford to have the thing. <laughs> right. So, so of course, I, I, I picked that book up and I read it three days max i was through it because it was pretty easy read um the way she told the story it really moved quickly i like first person accounts of these things uh other books that fit that bill um carrie rawson who is btk's daughter her book's just called the serial killer's daughter fantastic read easy i shouldn't say easy easy is a tough way to describe them because the it's subject matter the subject matter yeah the subject matter isn't easy but as far as the the ability to get through it quickly and comprehend it easily that that's what i mean when i say an easy read is it's you you can get through it and digest it pretty pretty quickly but that's first person account uh david thibodeau who will be a guest at dark history and horror convention this year is a Waco survivor. The Waco series on Netflix is based on his and uh, um, Gary Nessner, who was the FBI agent, the uh, negotiator. It's jointly based on their books together to tell both sides. Uh, Thibodeau's book, even though it's it's pretty thick, uh, three four hundred pages. I, I was through that one fast. I mean, I was just let me break out a big word for you. I was enraptured by it. Okay. Because I know I. I had not read it prior to meeting David. I met and befriended David, bought his book from him when I did that. So hearing him, we went to dinner at Outback Steakhouse. (laughs) So conversation over dinner and over the phone prior to him coming up here for the show two years ago, I had already built that rapport with him and I'd heard some of the stuff. I never wanted to bug him about it, although he, he told me from the first conversation we had that he's, he will talk about it easily with anybody. 
because he's still extremely passionate about what occurred and why it occurred. And so I'd already had some background, but then I had seen the TV series and then I read the book and I'd seen documentaries, of course. And, and hell, I remember watching the whole thing unfold when I was uh, just out of high school. Um, but then to read the book and get in-depth and have have some connection to that guy to begin with. Especially after talking with right, him. Right, and kind of know his makeup. It makes you more empathetic when you read it, and it just it, it pulls at you in a different way, I think. Uh, not to get way off on a tangent, but music is the same way for me. I've known a couple uh, musical artists when they would talk to me and tell me what went into an album, and then I hear the album drop and I hear the lyrics, I'm like, holy shit, I know, I know the it background clicks. of that. So it makes it more, uh, it, it, it affects you even more. It's personable. Exactly, yeah. and it's that way with Thibodeau. When I knew, got to know him and then read the book, I mean, as soon as I finished it up, I, I was messaging him. I was like, man, I just finished your book. Holy shit, dude, I, I'm sorry again. But thank you for for putting it all out there. I, I can't say enough good things about you in the book. And he was very appreciative. And hopefully we'll have him. I did talk to him about doing a Zoom interview with us sometime. He's getting ready to make a big move from Texas back to his home area of uh, Bangor, Maine. So, so he's getting ready to make a big move. And he said, yeah, once I get settled down, let me know. I reconfirmed with him for the convention. I was like, is that still going to be? And he's like, oh, yeah, man, that's all good. Well, I'll be there. So hopefully we'll have him on. I've also talked to uh, John Borowski, the filmmaker. Uh, it's just going to be a matter of getting our schedules synced up. That's probably going to be the issue for a lot of them. That's why I told the few people that I've inquired with, I've told them, give me three or four dates. I'll run it by you. Look at mine. And we'll pick one out of those three or four and hopefully get it done. So hopefully we'll be bringing those to you guys sometime soon, too. Sorry I got way off here, but I think it's always a decent thing to maybe learn a little bit more about me and a little bit about Austin and hear us talk about some other things besides just the cases I bring you. You've probably pulled from this that I am a book junkie. I don't know how many I have, but it's it's it borders on ridiculous, and I'd never get rid of them. <laughs> and that's... That's one thing I've talked to a couple of used bookstores about. Is they're like, yeah, people that are into true crime, they do not give them back. They just hold on to them. Um, I'm a huge fan of used bookstores because you can find things that are not out there anymore. Plus, they're very, very regularly, it's a mom and pop or a family operation, and I, I enjoy supporting them. And some of them have stories. I mean, I bought... A couple books in Lincoln, Nebraska, when I was going on one of my Charles Starkweather trips out there. And Blue Stem Bookstore, downtown Lincoln, Nebraska. It's crazy how I remember all these names and where they're at, too. But uh, I, Except I can't remember the, the uh, owner's name. But I remember going the first time I went to Lincoln. And he takes, I tell him what I'm looking for. And he takes me downstairs and points out, I think, two Starkweather books that I bought from him tells me that he was I think junior high high school when the Starkweather thing went on and it was a thing for people to go to see the trial and Starkweather's dad had him sign 
sign his or autograph his name numerous times on a piece of paper and Starkweather's dad would tear those off and he would be handing them out outside for a couple bucks. That's smart though. Yeah, it's smart and he but and he also told me that it was everybody's uh opinion that Carol Fugate had more to do with it than it ever was mentioned or implied and that was just the feeling and so to get the vibe in Lincoln, Nebraska at the time of the crime from this guy was great. Um, this was before GPS and things of that nature. So I had an address of one of the houses where he had murdered three people. Um, it's one of the only things still standing from his time because I was 59, 58, 59. Um, it happened to be the Ward residence, C. Lauer Ward. He killed uh, Mr. and Mrs. Ward and their housekeeper. Um he gave me directions to get to the house <laughs> and he told me that he'd actually been in the house because their one of their children had inherited it after their deaths and had a large library and they called him to come appraise the books and stuff so the stories you can get from some of these people yeah. are just just fantastic so it's incredible yeah so check out your used bookstores man i mean barnes and noble ain't going anywhere borders <laughs> borders i mean borders disappeared it's crazy and and watching some of these uh retro shows like you know stranger things and uh, most recently fear street they had the mall set in 1984 i think it was and they had a walden's book and a b dalton i remember both of those being at marketplace mall walden books and b dalton books i used to go to both of those places but but your big corporate shit you can get it anywhere you can order it off of amazon go to the mom and pop shops smell the books <laughs> see the bookshelves lose yourself that's my public service announcement for reading <laughs> and on that note we will wrap it up for this episode thanks for indulging me and hopefully listening to my tales of uh, books music and personal insights into how those things can affect you thanks for listening about the uh, school shooting cases that i brought to you guys this go around i don't know if part two will follow immediately after this i uh, might might take a little break. I'm usually not affected by these things. I usually take a very clinical approach to when I do these things. But this was about four, five hours worth of uh, research on this one. And yeah, I feel like I'm kind of done with reading about kids getting killed for right now. So, so it might not be right off the bat that you get this one. And like I said... I do have some personal things coming up, job change, surgical procedure. We're going to put a few things down, so hopefully we'll be able to continue with the content. So we'll just see how that all falls. But as always, thanks for listening. Share it all with all your friends. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, and pretty much anywhere else I think that you can find your podcasts. Tell your friends about it. If you know anybody that's interested, do that. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, and follow Dark History and Horror Conventions coming up October 23rd. And yeah, now that you guys are listening on Wednesday, make sure you've gone to the Dark History and Horror Convention Facebook page where on Monday I announced our celebrity guest, Terry McMinn, who played Pam, the meat hook girl from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Um, I've met Terry once before. Extremely, extremely friendly. Uh, tells you the stories. She, she's just a I, I'm very happy to have her as a guest um, she's a good one for the fans because she appreciates the fans understands the 
understands both the position that that movie holds and how it's one of the first of its kind. Um, she understands all that. She still lives in Texas. We're flying her in from Texas to be a part of the show. Uh, come out and meet Terry. She'll, I'm sure she'll be great for some stories. I've seen her table set up. She has great 8 by 10 pictures. Um, the movie poster for Texas Chainsaw Massacre is Leatherface with his arms wrapped around her, pulling her back in the house. That's her. So she has that picture. She has pictures of her on the hook and, and, and everything else. She has her Facebook page called Pam the Meat Hook Girl. That is its own Facebook page with a few thousand people that follow that. So, yeah, we're very happy to have Terry. You guys have a good evening or later afternoon, I guess it will be when this hits. Have a good afternoon. Have a good evening. And we will uh, we'll talk to you again soon.